Hey. How's everybody doing? Good. Y'all are nodding your heads like. I yell. It's hard to see if you're uh, serious or not. Yeah? Good? No? Good. How's school? It's there. It's the worst? Why? I'm tired of people. They get on my nerves. Hey, hey, hey. I push people in the hallway. I understand that. Well, don't do that. You're going to make people tired of you. What about y'all? How's school? It's good? Bad. Bad? Don't like it? What's, what, what's your favorite part about school, and then what's your least favorite part about school? Having funny beef with your teacher. That's the, that's the best part or the worst part? That's the best part? Uh, what is second period? Science. Science? Yeah, I like science okay, but I'm not very good at it. I like math, and I like Ew. history. Those are my, those are my I'm favorites. I'm math. I sleep in math. I'm very good at, like, English and writing and stuff, but I don't like it at all. It's my least favorite thing to do, but at any rate. Um, I'm glad y'all are here. Um, I was almost worried nobody was going to show up, so I'm really glad that y'all are here. So, who can tell me what book we're in tonight? Does anyone remember? That's correct. Yes, we are in Second Timothy, because we were in First Timothy last week. So, you know, it makes sense if we're going one Timothy to go next to two Timothy, right? Common sense. Common sense, that's right. Common sense applies, is what I like to say. Um, can anybody tell me anything about the book of Second Timothy? Anything at all? It follows First Timothy, that's correct. In the order of our New Testament, that's, uh, that's where it comes. Yes? Paul wrote it, that is correct. Who did he write it to? Huh? I don't know the answer to that question, but I had some Can anyone tell Ava who Paul wrote this letter to? <laughs> he wrote it to Timothy. That's why it's named Timothy. Oh, well, I guess I could figure that You know, out. We, have the, we have the book of Ephesians, right, which is written to the Ephesian church. You got the book of Philippians written to the Philippian church. You got the book of Timothy. It's written to Timothy. Um, does anyone know what the book's about? Timothy. It's not about Timothy, but it's to Timothy. So what did Paul write to him about? That's, that's a very good summary of, of, of the letter. It's pretty much, hey, don't, don't stray from what you've been taught, specifically what you've been taught in God's Word. And so I want you all to think for a second. I know that you all don't have, um, don't have a, a, a mentee, right, or, or you all are not old enough to have children, but um, imagine you knew you were going to die, so you're like on your deathbed, and you're, uh, think of like your best friend, perhaps, um, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's uh, a neighbor, maybe it's just, you know, um, an extended family member or just a friend you've had growing up. And you have just kind of like one more chance to say what you need to say to this friend. Um, what would you say? What are the kind of things that you would want to communicate to them if all you had was one more chance? And that's, and that's it. If it was like, okay, I've got to say everything I need to say right now. Here it is. What, what would that be? What would that look like? Well, that's kind of what 2 Timothy is. 2 Timothy is one of the last letters that Paul wrote. And Paul wrote this while he was uh, imprisoned for the second time in Rome. We aren't 100% positive exactly why he was arrested, um, but uh, Paul's pretty certain that he's going to die. He's pretty certain he's heading towards execution and and death. And so he's writing this letter kind of as... um, 
you know, kind of as his, his hey, here's, here's the things I need to say to my beloved son, Timothy, uh, my beloved son of the faith. These are the things that I need you to know, I need you to understand from me. Um, and that's kind of the reason that he wrote this letter. Um, so he's writing from prison, and Paul wrote this letter uh, for, for two main reasons. The first one was he, to- he told Timothy, hey, I want you to come to Rome. Um, I'm in prison. I might not ever see you again. I want you to come and visit me one more time. I want to see your face one more time before I die. Um, and then the other thing was to really encourage Timothy in his ministry. And uh, so but prim- Paul's primary goal is really to encourage Timothy um, as a pastor. Past- uh, Timothy was a pastor in a local church. And so a lot of Paul's encouragement was towards that end. Hey, in your role as a pastor, in your role as a shepherd, in your role as an elder, I want to give you some encouragement. Um, and so the direct application that we can take from this book is to those who are in leadership over God's people, specifically who are in leaders, uh, leadership in the church. Um, but that said, even though the most direct application is to pastors, is to deacons, is to any sort of leader um, in the church, um, really anybody who um, uh, leads God's people in any capacity uh, will find application in this book. So if you're a parent, I know none of y'all are parents, but if you're like a small group leader, or you're a friend, or you have siblings, and you are attempting to bring the Word of God to bear on their lives, you will find application. You will find important things to know here in this letter of 2 Timothy. And so just by way of kind of a a brief overview of the book, um, I just want to go through kind of a brief outline, and then I'm going to really kind of zero in on one particular chapter that... um, uh, in this book. And so the outline that I have comes from the Reformation Study Bible. Um, I've mentioned several times throughout this study. Um, and if you, um, you know, talk to me in any other capacity, uh, questions about the Bible, I'll, I'll say it again. You can get very far in your Bible study and in your Bible knowledge if you have a good study Bible or a good commentary. Um, a commentary is, you can almost think about it like kind of like a written sermon in a manner of speaking. Obviously, they, they go in a little more depth but essentially, that's all they're doing is they're kind of going through the scriptures and saying, here's what this word means. Here's what this phrase means. Here's what Paul's trying to communicate here. And so a commentary is very helpful. Um, there's lots of fantastic commentaries out there. My favorite one is the Matthew Henry uh, commentary on the whole Bible. But this, the outline that I'm going to kind of give you for Timothy comes from the Reformation Study Bible. I have right here the ESV Study Bible. Um, and at the beginning, they have kind of all this information about the book. So when it was written kind of the purpose of it, um, how it fits in with the rest of Scripture, and then they'll have like a little outline of kind of a letter. And so but between a good study Bible, you can kind of get a good idea. You can wrap your head around, okay, what exactly is Paul trying to do here in this letter? And so, like I said, this kind of outline comes from the Reformation Study Bible. I highly commend it to you. It's one of my favorites. And so at the beginning of the letter, we have Paul's introduction. Uh, Paul kind of has like a standard greeting that he gives at the beginning of every letter, and you can see it right there in verse 1. He says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he has some different variations on that introduction. But Paul always kind of gives a, a, a basic introduction to all of so like Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to Timothy, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Philippi. And so Paul gives his... his you know, standard apostolic greeting. And then um, in verses three to five, he gives kind of a thanksgiving for Timothy, right? This is a personal letter that he's writing to an individual. And so in these first uh, few verses, he says, you know, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you 
Timothy, constantly in my prayers, day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. And so he's giving thanks for, for Timothy. He's giving thanks for his faith, his thanks for his friendship. Um, and then uh, starting in verse 6 and really uh, to about halfway through um, chapter 2, uh, Paul is going to be exhorting Timothy to boldness and faithfulness. Um, he's going to tell him, starting in verse um, 8, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So Paul tells him, do not be ashamed of the gospel. A lot of people will be ashamed of the gospel. A lot of people do not want to um, hold fast to the truth of the gospel. He's saying, don't do that. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. He tells, um, uh, he tells us in the book of Romans that the, it's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. Um, and, and then he tells him, like, don't be ashamed of me either. You know, right now I'm in prison. Um, I don't know about y'all, but it's probably not the best or your personal brand, if we can put it that way, to be associating with prisoners. But Paul is saying, don't be ashamed of me uh, because I'm in prison for the gospel. So if you're not supposed to be ashamed of the gospel, why would you be ashamed of the one who's proclaiming the gospel, right? So he says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me, uh, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And he goes on to give um, a couple examples. He, go, he goes on uh, to call some people out by name. Uh, first, he calls out um, uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Um, as examples of unfaithfulness. He says, uh, you're aware uh, that all uh, who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phrygelus and Hermogenes, right? He says that uh, right there in verse 15. Uh, so he calls these people out saying, these people were ashamed of me. These people turned away. Don't be like them. Uh, but then he goes on uh, to commend um, Onesiphorus uh, there in verses 16 through 18. And so he gives him kind of a, a, a don't be like these people. Uh, let me commend this, uh, this brother and be like him. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me. Um, and then he tells him to, to be strong, to be courageous, and to persevere in grace and truth. And then really for the, for the last half of chapter 2 and really all of verse, uh, or excuse me, chapter 3, um, Paul's primary uh, like goal is to kind of address his teachers. Um, if y'all were here last week, and Jeff Dalton gave a, a really good overview of First Timothy, and he also gave a really good job of kind of explaining some of the timeline uh, as far as the relationship of Paul and Timothy goes. Um, and so if you weren't here last week, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, I highly commend you. Check out our YouTube channel, go to our website, check out our podcast, all those sorts of things. Uh, there's plenty of ways you, you can get it. Um, if you need help, just ask. I can, I'll let you do that. But um, one of the main things that Paul was dealing with in First Timothy was this issue of false teachers. And so Paul's kind of reiterating, hey, this is a problem, and this is something that you need to be aware of, and you need to be ready to deal with it. And so he tells, um, he tells him to, um, um, where does he say it? He says, do your best. This is in uh, chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do your best to present yourself as one, uh, to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so he says, you, you, your goal is to present yourself to God, right? It's not to present yourself to man, it's not to present yourself to uh, anyone else but, but to God himself. And so you need to present yourself as uh, one who is approved, as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So he's telling him, don't, don't be ashamed of the gospel. 
uh, understand who your primary audience is, right? God is your primary audience, and rightly handle the word of truth. Don't twist the scriptures. A lot of people will twist the scriptures for their own gain. Don't be like them. He tells them to avoid irreverent babble, avoid youthful passions, avoid foolish and ignorant controversies. Um, I don't know about y'all, but it seems like most of the things you see on social media today, um, I don't have TikTok, but I, you know, I do use Instagram occasionally, and I you get stuff on Instagram from TikTok. Majority of the stuff that you see there, I think you could classify as foolish and ignorant controversies. People just talking trash about stuff they know about, and it's, it's all just a waste of time at the end of the day. Paul's telling Timothy, avoid that kind of stuff. There's no need to get uh, caught up in sort of these controversies that at the end of the day are foolish and ignorant. And he also uh, exhorts him to uh, avoid being quarrelsome. Uh, do do y'all know those kinds of people who it just seems like they always want to fight? Are those kinds of people fun to be around? Are those kinds of people the type of people you can really like lock arms with and be friends with and really like, you know, do good things with? It's not. Those types of people are frustrating around. And so Paul tells him, don't be quarrelsome. Don't always be looking for a fight. And in chapter 3, he, he really nails down on the centrality of God's word. And we'll come back to chapter 3 um, here in just a minute, and that's where we'll, we'll spend the rest of our time. And so um, in chapter 4, Paul kind of, uh, after kind of completing this, um, the bulk of this letter, dealing with false teachers, uh, encouraging Timothy in his ministry, um, uh, telling him to hold fast to God's word, he kind of goes back to some of this, this personal relationship with, with Timothy. And that's kind of what he gets at in, um, in chapter 4. He tells him, come and see me soon, please. He tells him to, to bring Mark uh, along with him. Uh, he tells him to watch out for Alexander the coppersmith. Again, he calls somebody out by name saying, hey, this guy's not a good dude. Uh, watch out for this guy. And he reminds Timothy that at the end of the day, he knows that the Lord will rescue him, whether uh, in this life or the next. So he is fully confident that whatever happens to him, he is going to be okay. And so um, that's just a quick overview of that. And so what I want to do now is I want to go back to chapter three. Um, and I really just kind of want to highlight a good bit uh, of this chapter. And what I'm going to do first is I'm going to read through the entirety of the chapter, and then we'll kind of go back and just hit on a few things um, uh, throughout this chapter. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, open it to Second Timothy chapter three. We're going to start in verse one, and we're going to read the whole chapter. Starting at verse 1, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving others, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to acquire, or excuse me, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was uh, that of those two men. You, however, followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be good work. Now, uh, one of the things we have to understand about letters is that the letters do function as a whole, right? Um, if you sent a letter to somebody and all that they got was like one sentence in the middle, it kind of wouldn't make sense, right? I mean, maybe it would make sense, but that, that sentence in the middle is in the context of a full letter, right? So we have to under, in order to understand that sentence, we have to have the full letter. And so there is also a sense in which um, sometimes um, when we're studying the Bible and when we're reading so focused on one verse or we get so focused on one chapter that we miss the larger context of the entire letter. And so uh, that is certainly the case with, uh, with Paul's letter to Timothy. Um, but you can see that chapter 3 kind of uh, is very, um, it's very concise and it is, is somewhat, uh, can kind of function on its own. There's a good bit of it that um, speaks for itself. You don't necessarily need the context to understand exactly what he's driving at. But I would encourage you, in your free time, maybe when you go home tonight, maybe for the rest of this week, go back and just read through the rest of the letter, and you'll kind of get a, a, a more full-orbed picture. But Paul starts in chapter 3, and he tells Timothy, um, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, in the last days? What do y'all think? What's he talking about? Last days before the Lord's come, ba- Lord's come back? Okay. What, what else? Anybody else? Is that kind of what everybody thinks? What do you think? What he said? <laughs> so when Paul says last days here, we're, it's kind of tough to figure out exactly what he means. Um, it, it, if he was talking about last days before the Lord comes back, has the Lord come back yet? He hasn't. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years, roughly. And so that's one understanding of it, is that what Paul is, when Paul says last days, what he's referring to is the time between Christ's first coming, right, which was at the incarnation when he was born to a virgin in Bethlehem, where he lived a life, he had his earthly ministry, he died, he was resurrected, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So that's the first coming, and his second coming when he returns in victory. So some people believe that what he's talking about is that time in between those two advents time between the first coming and the second coming. Um, Personally, I believe that what Paul is talking about is not last days in terms of end of the world. And, you know, I'm okay with last days in terms of uh, the time between first and second coming. But I really think what Paul is is hitting at is that Paul is talking about the last days of the old covenant age. And so what you had um, at the coming of Christ is you had sort of the the inauguration of of this new covenant age. And between... um, between uh, Christ's first coming and really the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, you have kind of this overlap where the old covenant and the new covenant were existing at the same time. And so when Paul says last days, what I'm, what I'm pretty sure he's referring to is the last days of this old covenant age. This old covenant was getting ready to pass away. And now the, the full um, inauguration of this new covenant is now in full force. Um, and so I'm pretty sure that that's what he's talking about. Um, and if you go back to Acts chapter 2, um, at, at the day of Pentecost, Peter uh, quotes the prophet Joel. If you remember the day of Pentecost, um, the Holy Spirit came down and uh, was uh, descended on people in flaming tongues of fire, and they started speaking in uh, different languages. And everyone was confused, like, what's going on? Why are you 
people speaking all these different languages. And uh, Peter gets up and he sort of gives really the first sermon of the church age. And he tells them that what you're seeing is not anything crazy. What you're seeing is actually the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And pro- uh, specifically what Joel said, let me grab that real quick for us and, and read it for you. He said, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He says, and in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And so what Peter was essentially saying is that this, 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 uh, this coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was actually the start of these last days. And so Paul is kind of picking up on that theme a little bit. And he's saying that uh, what Timothy needs to understand is that in these last days, there is going to be difficulty. And so uh, as he goes on to uh, verses 2 through 5, he, he tells them exactly why there will be times of difficulty. He said, there will be times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of the money, they'll be proud, they'll be arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, they'll be ungrateful, they'll be unholy. They'll be heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They'll be brutal, not loving good. They'll be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So he says, you will have, in these last days, there will be times of difficulty. It's because of people like this. Now, let me ask you, when you read that, um, and, you, and you read of people being lovers of self, people being lovers of money, people being arrogant, people being unholy, people being, having, having no self-control, um, do you think we have people like that in our day? Yes. We do, don't we? And I think what Paul is, is trying to say is not so much um, these people are only around during the last days, but I think what he's saying is that these people always bring difficulty. And in these last days, there's people like this, so you're going to have difficulty. Does that make sense? And so as we look at it and we, as we read this description, we can go, hmm, there's people like this in our day. I think that means we're going to have difficulty too. Um, so we can be sure that we're going to have difficulty in our day because of people like this. And what he says, starting in verse 5, he says, these people have an outward appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. In other words, what he's saying is that they have this sort of outward facade, this outward appearance of holiness, but they do not actually possess God's spirit and a new heart. In the Old Testament, back in Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet Ezekiel receives this vision of the new covenant. And in this vision, he sees that God is going to do this thing where he gives people a new heart. He takes out their old dead heart of stone. And he gives them a heart of flesh. And he says, I'm going to give them a new heart and I'm going to give them my spirit so that they will be careful to walk according to my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so we see that uh, in this vision of this new covenant that it's not simply that I'm going to make people do the right thing or I'm going to force people you know, if we can put it that way. I'm going to force people uh, to live by these strict rules. But instead, what he says is, I'm going to give them a new heart, and I'm going to give them my spirit so that they can do these things. I don't know about y'all, but following the rules is hard. It's very difficult. Doing the right thing is not easy. And if it were up to us, if we were just left on our own, we would not be people to do the right thing. We would be people that Paul described. We would be lovers of self. We would be lovers of money. We would be proud and arrogant. We would be disobedient to parents. We would be unholy. We would have no self-control. We would, be, we would not love good. We would love pleasure rather than love God. Um, but because God has given us his spirit and a new heart, now we can not just obey God, but we can do it from the heart. Um, again, kind of pointing back to the Old Testament, in uh, the book of Jeremiah, uh, the prophet Jeremiah is indicting the nation of Judah because he says that they returned 
pretense, but they did not return with their whole heart. They returned, they sort of had this outward appearance of returning to God, but they did not actually return with their whole heart. They were severely judged for it. And so we need to make sure that we're not just putting on a front. We're not just putting on this outward appearance of, of holiness, but actually we are obeying God from the heart. And the only way we can do that is if God actually acts first and gives us a new heart so that we can walk according to his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. So Paul says that these people, um, they have this outward appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And when he says uh, they deny its power, what, what he's really driving at is that, they, uh, is that they don't know how to apply the word that they know. So he's saying like they have this outward appearance, but it doesn't actually apply. It doesn't actually get applied to their hearts. They're not actually living according to the scriptures. He's saying that they, these people, they know the scriptures. They know what it says. Um, and even in some ways, they like to put up a front that they're doing what it says, but it, they don't actually apply it properly. Um, and so Timothy is then given a very strong admonition to avoid such people. That's what he tells them right there um, in verse 6. He says, uh, or right there at the end of verse 5, he says, avoid such people. And so at, in verse 6, he says, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led them astray by various passions. And the point that he's getting at, again, we have to keep in mind, one of the main things he's dealing with is false teachers. These false teachers have an outward appearance of holiness, but they deny the power of God because they don't actually apply it to their lives. They have an outward appearance of holiness, but they have not actually been obedient to God from the heart. And he's saying that these people are intentionally trying to lead weak, weak people astray. So these false teachers are targeting weak people for the purpose of leading them astray. And so he's saying that these people are not interested in the truth. These false teachers, they're not actually interested in godliness. They're not interested in holiness. They're not interested in pursuing righteousness. What they're actually interested in is their own fame and fortune. They're only interested in uh, leading people away so that they can gain wealth and power and knowledge and all those sorts of things. Uh, And then in verse 7, he says, these people always learn and they're never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Again, we see that these people are always acquiring knowledge, but they're never able to actually have the truth transform them. Uh, we're told in Scripture that we need to be renewed by, uh, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so if we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that requires our minds to take things in, right? If my mind's going to change the things that I do, well, it has to take in information, it has to process that information, and it has to consent in a manner of speaking to that information to go, okay, well, if this is true, I need to not do that. For instance, um, if I was to walk outside and it was raining and I walked into the rain and I got wet and I decided I don't want to get wet anymore, right? I have to change something, don't I? If my mind's actually going to transform my actions, right? I have to take in that information. I walk in the rain, I get wet and I have to change something about what I'm doing. I have to get an umbrella. I have to wear a raincoat. I have to wait till it stops raining to go outside, right? Does that make sense? So... These people, though, they're constantly taking in information, but it's not actually changing them. He's saying they're always learning, but they're never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. So they're taking in information, they're acquiring knowledge, but it's not actually transforming them. Nothing's changing about their lives because it's not actually, it's not actually renewing their minds. It's not actually sinking into their hearts because their hearts are hardened because they're not interested actually in holiness. They're only interested in leading people astray. And there's also something important to note about this. When he talks about these people are always learning, but they're never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. In the book of Colossians, uh, 
Paul says that in Christ, right? In chapter 2 of Colossians, he says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so if we want to possess true knowledge in life, and that's even true knowledge when it comes to things like mathematics or things like music or things like science or history, if we want to arrive at true knowledge, well, then we need to understand the source of true knowledge, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the source of all knowledge. Now, that's not to say that people who aren't Christians aren't smart. There's plenty of really smart people who are actually really dumb, if I can put it that way. They're extremely smart, but the problem is is that foundationally they have denied the source of wisdom and knowledge. So their knowledge can only take them so far, right? They can acquire knowledge, they can always be learning, but they never arrive at a knowledge of the truth because they've denied the source of the truth. And so the wisdom of the world, right, what the world says is true wisdom is actually foolishness according to Scripture. And no matter how smart people think they are, um, if they have rejected the true source of wisdom and knowledge, they will be just like these people that Paul described, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And then in verse 8, he says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now, who were Janus and Jambres? Did those names ring a bell for anybody? Well, they shouldn't because this is the only place they're mentioned in the Bible. But does anyone know who Janus and Jambres are? Well, Paul gives us a little bit of information that helps us kind of narrow down the church. He says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Well, who opposed Moses? Do we remember anything from the story of Moses where perhaps he was opposed by somebody else? Or a couple of other people. Nobody wants to take any guesses? Well, if you go back to Exodus, uh, really starting in chapter 7 and 8, um, Paul goes into Pharaoh's courts and he starts demanding of Pharaoh that you let my people go so that they may worship God. And of course, Pharaoh says no. And so what does Moses start doing? He starts doing these miraculous signs and actually leveling plagues against the people of Egypt. And if you go back in, in Exodus um, chapter 8, you'll see that Moses performed these signs. Moses uh, leveled these plagues against Egypt. And there were some magicians in Pharaoh's court who could do the same thing. Those magicians are who these people are. Janus and Jambres are these two magicians from Pharaoh's court. And so what Paul is saying is that just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, these men also oppose the truth. They're men who are corrupted in mind and they're disqualified regarding the faith. So these charlatans, right, uh, that have just been described by Paul as opposing the truth in the same way that Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, right? Moses came and his staff turned into a snake, and then Janus and Jambres came and said, well, look, our staff can turn into a snake too. Boom, we've got the same power. Well, Moses' snake ended up eating the other snakes, so there's that. But then Moses turns the water to blood, and they go, well, look, we can do that too. And then Moses... Um, uh, 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 performs the, the plague with the frogs, and they're like, look, we can make frogs too. And so these men are opposing Moses. They're opposing the power that Moses walked in, which was the power of God. And so he's saying that in the same way that they oppose Moses, these people, these, um, these people who are, um, are lovers of self, lovers of money, uh, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, these people oppose the truth in the same way that Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. They're false teachers, they're men of corrupt mind, and they are disqualified regarding the faith. Now, um, Janus and Jambres were actually very powerful, right? I mean, Moses took a stick and made it turn into a snake. 
And these magicians did the same thing, right? I don't know about y'all, that's kind of creepy. I mean, if, if a man of God came in here and made a, uh, a staff turn into a snake, that would be incredible. But if a, if a uh, magician came and did the same thing, that would really creep me out. Like, what kind of power does he have if he's able to do that? Um, so initially, as we hear that Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, and now you have people opposing the truth of the gospel, our first thought should be like, well, those guys were kind of powerful. Should we be worried? Should we be worried that now we face opposition of sort of the same kind? But in verse 9, Paul says, but, these, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men, these two men speaking of Janus and Jambres. So although Janus and Jambres, they were powerful, right? They were soon exposed as servants of an inferior God. So again, if you go back to Exodus chapter 8, and specifically in, in verse um, 18, uh, Moses is getting ready to level the third plague against Egypt. And let me, let me just go back there and read some of this for y'all, because it's, it's actually quite fascinating. So Moses is leveling these plagues against, um, against Egypt. And so he does the first plague, water turned to blood. We read about that in, um, in chapter 7. And, uh, and then in chapter 8, we see the second plague of the frogs. And we read that the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. But then when we get to the third plague, the plague of the gnats, um, we read, um, starting in verse 18, it says, The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So, in the same way, right, Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, and they were very powerful in the way that they opposed Moses. But they did not get very far, right? They could only go toe-to-toe with Moses on two plagues. How many plagues were there? Does anyone remember? Close, 10. So there were 10 plagues, and they were able to go toe-to-toe on two of them. That's it. So were they really that powerful? No. They, they got, you know, to use a, a uh, modern, they got their butts handed to them, essentially, and that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy. These people who are opposing the truth, they're eventually going to get their butts handed to them. He says they could, uh, Janus and Jambres can only replicate two of the plagues, right? They could not replicate all of them. So eventually, they lost. And so he's saying in the same way, these false teachers, they cannot survive for long. These false teachers will soon be ex- exposed for what they really are, which is wolves and sheep's clothing. And so at this point, following, you know, verse, verse 10 and following, Paul kind of moves from identifying the problem and helping Timothy to see the problem uh, to now providing Timothy with instruction for what he must do in light of these problems. And so in, um, in verse 10, he says, but you, speaking to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. So after describing these false converts and these false teachers, Paul explains that what sets Timothy apart, and actually what sets all Christians apart, is that Timothy followed the apostles' teaching. He followed the apostles' conduct. He followed the apostles' aim in life. He followed the apostles' faith. Any Christian who's a Christian today, anyone who's been born again, has has done so because they have followed the apostles' teaching. And where do we have the apostles' teaching? right here in the scriptures. The only way anyone is born again is through the testimony of Jesus Christ delivered to us through the apostles and contained for us in these written scriptures. 
And so Paul is saying that you have been set apart because you actually have followed my teaching. All who are truly come again will come to receive the gospel and follow the apostles' teaching as contained in God's word. And so like Timothy, right, here's where we get to see some, a, a little bit of application. Like Timothy, our faith must be built upon the apostolic witness of Christ. Timothy followed Paul. Timothy followed his teaching. Timothy followed his conduct, his faith, and his aim in life. We too must follow the scriptures. If we, um, and we too must follow Paul, just like Timothy. We too must follow the apostles' teaching, the apostles' conduct, the apostles' faith, the apostles' aim in life. We too must hold fast to the scriptures if we're going to be like Timothy. And so starting in verse 11, he says, um, uh, really in verse 12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad towards being deceived. The natural response of the world to the gospel message is hostility. The natural man cannot receive the things of God. So their only recourse, the only thing they're left to do is to fight and is to uh, oppose and is to be hostile to the truth of the gospel message. And that's because in, in their heart of hearts, uh, the book of Romans in chapter 1 tells us that everyone knows God. In their heart of hearts, they know God. The problem is, is that they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And so because they're working so hard to deny the truth that they know in their heart of hearts, they know there is a God, but they're trying so hard to suppress it, that knowledge, in, um, in unrighteousness. Because of that, whenever somebody puts forth the gospel message, whenever, whenever somebody points them to that truth they're trying to suppress, it makes them angry. And again, kind of like we talked about before, um, it's really only after God gives us his spirit and a new heart that we can actually receive the things of God. The only reason that we receive the truth in the scriptures, the only reason we receive the truth of the gospel is because God has changed us. If God had not changed us, we would have been hostile to the gospel message too. And, at, and the truth is that at one point we were hostile to the gospel message. But without being changed, right, without being given God's spirit and a new heart, we would actually be like these people. We would be lovers of self. We would be lovers of money. We would be proud. We would be arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but of denying its power. That's what we would be if we were left in our natural state. And so Paul is telling Timothy that you can expect persecution. Because, uh, you can expect persecution. The followers of Christ can expect persecution from the world because they're hostile to the truth of the gospel. So long as man is in his sin, he will be hostile to the truth of God's word because the gospel identifies, God's word identifies, it confronts, and it indicts people in their sin. And so their only recourse is to be hostile to God's message. And so then starting in verse 14, right, so he, so he lays that out, this out for him. And so the question that naturally comes next is, okay, well, what do I do about it? And Paul tells him, starting in verse 14, he says, but as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so when Paul is telling him, first and foremost, he's telling him you need to hold fast to what you have learned. 
And so this is a reference uh, first to Timothy's mother and grandmother, which are mentioned uh, back in chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, I believe uh, his mother's name is Eunice and his grandmother Lois. Uh, Paul commends these women for how they raised Timothy. He's saying the, you, your, your mother and your grandmother raised you right. They taught you the scriptures. And that's important. And so when Paul says, hold fast to what you have learned, understanding who you have learned it from, he's telling him, he's kind of reminding him, hey, your mother and your grandmother, they taught you the truth. Remember that. But he's not only uh, pointing to Timothy's grandmother and his mother, Paul's also pointing to himself, right? Because Paul, or, or excuse me, Timothy received Paul's apostolic message. So it's not just remember what you learned from your mother and your grandmother. Remember what you learned from me. Remember the faith that I taught you. Remember the things that I taught you and hold fast to those teachings. Remember that this came from me and hold fast to that. But ultimately, right? So Paul reminds him, hey, you learned this from your grandmother and your mother. You learned it from me. But ultimately what Paul is pointing to is the fact that Timothy learned this through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Again, like I've mentioned already, the only way we can receive the things of God is if God changes our hearts. If God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. So ultimately, the one that we learned it from is God himself, because God actually is the one who gave us his spirit, and God is actually the one who changed our hearts. And Paul actually makes clear in, in other letters, he says, if anybody comes and gives you another gospel, even if, I, even if I come and give you another gospel, reject it. There's only one true gospel. And so Paul's not simply pointing to individuals like himself and saying, hey, trust me, right? I'm good for it. No, Paul has said before, if I say something else, don't trust me. Trust the gospel. Trust the truth of the gospel. And what Paul is trying to point to, uh, he says, um, uh, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. He's saying, remember, it's the Holy Spirit that bears witness to these things. It's the Holy Spirit of God that convicts you of these things and tells you that these things are true. Understand that this truth has been illuminated to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't trust me. Trust God because these things come from him. And then, starting in verse 16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, Paul kind of hits on a lot of stuff in this book. But really, the, the main emphasis of his letter is really that we need to hold fast to the Word of God. And this is really the primary point and the central point of Paul's letter. And he's trying to exhort Timothy, this needs to be the central part of your ministry. I want you to think for a moment. Paul says that the words of Scripture are God-breathed. Where else in the Bible, where else do we see sort of an explicit reference to the breath of God that y'all can think of? Can anyone think of an explicit reference to God's breath anywhere in the Bible? There's one, there's one in particular that I'm thinking of. Anybody? Okay. Well, if you go back to the... What you got? In Genesis. Exactly. In the creation account. If you go back to Genesis and you read about the creation of man, it says that God got down and formed man from the dust. And when he got finished forming the man out of the dust, what was left was a lifeless corpse. But then it says that God breathed the breath of life, into his nostrils. And he became a living being. And so when Paul says that this scripture is God-breathed, I think this is, he's explicitly tying it back to this creation account. 
we see that the very life source for Adam was the breath of God. Adam had no life apart from God's breath. And what he's trying to tell Timothy is that as a Christian, we have no life apart from God's breath. And God's breath is given to us in the scriptures. So in the same way that the very life source of Adam was the breath of God in his nostrils, the very life source for the believer is the word of God as contained in these written scriptures. And Paul tells him that this, this word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And he tells him that, that the man of God may be complete. There are a lot of people out there who will tell you that you need something other than God's word. You need God's word and you need uh, pop psychology. You need God's word and you need drugs. You need God's word and you need tradition. You need God's word and you need a burning in the bosom. You need God's word and th- th- there's always something else. But what does Paul tell Timothy? He says, no, God's word is sufficient to make you complete. He doesn't say it's, he doesn't say um, uh, scripture is breathed out by God that the man of God may be almost complete. But you got to have something else. You got to have this tradition. You've got to have this whatever it is, this help, you know, whatever. No, he says the word of God is sufficient to make you complete and to equip you for every good work. And so Paul's instruction to Timothy um, is wholly in keeping with Christ's words in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus sort of gives this analogy. He says that those who hear his words and who do them will be like a wise man who has built his house on a rock. And that house that was built on the rock, it stood firm when the storms came. It did not matter how much the rain and the winds beat against that house. It did not fall because it, was, it had been built upon the rock. And so in the same way, right, if we're to be equipped for every good work, if we are um, to be complete, if we are to hold fast to the very source of life, which is God's breath, then we need to build our li- lives upon the rock. We need to hear the words of Christ. We need to hear the testimony of Christ in these scriptures, and we need to build our lives upon it. And so, if we are to stand fast in the face of persecution, right, kind of going back to Paul's main message, he's exhorting Timothy. He's saying, if you want to stand fast, and this is true for all the Christians as well, so this isn't just for Timothy. If you want to stand fast in the face of persecution, if you want to stand fast in the face of false teachers, even powerful false Janus and Jambres, those who oppose the truth. If you want to stand fast in the midst of sin and lawlessness, then we must hold fast to the word of God, for it is the only sure foundation for our lives. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and and close out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had just to study your word, Lord, to look at at this God-breathed scripture, Lord, and to come to this scripture with the purpose of having our lives transformed. God, I pray that you, would, um, that you would put into these students a desire to know your word, Lord, a desire and a hunger to study your word so that they would be more and more transformed into the image of Christ. Lord, if there's any students who don't know you here today, God, I pray that your spirit would begin to do that work of taking out that heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh so that they may be careful to walk according to your statutes and be careful to obey your rules. I pray that they would come to see Christ for who he really is as the second person of the Trinity, the sufficient Savior who accomplished the salvation of his people. God, they would recognize that there is salvation in no one else except for Christ Jesus, and they would put their faith and trust in him. 
We thank you and praise you for all these things, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.